One of the ways our Lord reveals himself to his people is through the reading of the scriptures. And this morning we meet Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 1 to 10. As we prepare to meet Jesus in the scriptures this morning, let's pray that the Spirit may open our hearts. Our generous God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it reveals your character and your heart to us. We pray that your spirit will be here and open our hearts, the ears of our hearts, so that we may truly hear your word, truly come to know something of who you are, and truly live our lives according to it. In the name of Christ, amen. John 1, or John 10, 1 to 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. And the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech. But the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in, And go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the word of the Lord. Here I find my greatest treasure. Hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. If you're like me, you've probably got that one hymn that you could sing every Sunday and not get sick of it. For me, it's come thou fount of every blessing. And right now, this updated second stanza, it really hits me. It taps into the deepest longings that we have, doesn't it? That greatest treasure. Here I find my greatest treasure. Not some crude materialistic thing, but the unfathomable riches that come from a deep and true relationship with God. And then the thought of arriving safely at home. There aren't too many thoughts that are more potent and powerful than that. 
And I know, maybe a lot of us are kind of sick of our homes right now. The cabin fever has set in. And most of us who have gathered this morning haven't gathered here, but remain in our home behind closed doors to keep that little corona microbe at bay. So in a kind of ironic way, maybe we're very much at home, but not really at home. We're not really at home because we're missing the fullness of life, right? The gatherings and the celebrations and the birthday parties and the concerts and the movies and the dinners out that we used to know a year ago. The stuff that makes up the good life, life to the full, right? And so the thought of coming home to all that, that's a tantalizing thought. I think that kind of longing, that that wistfulness, I think that, that occupies a pretty deep place in our hearts. It speaks to a spiritual kind of longing. To return back to that place, to that garden, to that Eden, where we could walk with God in the cool of the evening. Knowing the fullness and the flourishing and the abundance of God's care, God's protection, God's abundance. Deep down, we know that we're exiles. That we're on the outside of that garden, that original home we were given. I remember being a kid sitting in church and hearing the story of when God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and how God placed an angel at the eastern gate An angel with a flaming sword. The kind of thing that sticks in the mind of a kid. But I also remember thinking, just the east side? One angel? Couldn't Adam and Eve just go around back? Go back in? I don't know. Maybe that's not possible. Maybe the Garden of Eden, the north and west and south sides were enclosed in some dense briar with thorns or, or, or giant rocks or, or something like that. But you know, the thought of sneaking back in, of finding our own way back in, I don't think those are just the sneaky thoughts of a kid sitting in church. Trying to break back in to find the paradise we've all lost. That's been the story of humanity since we first took those two steps out of the garden. That longing for that original home runs deep. But we've ruptured that relationship with God that we once had. And we went our own way and we did what was acceptable in our own eyes. And so that story, that longing, that's continued It's been behind every utopian political scheme we've ever come up with, behind every materialistic promise of the good life, behind every self-help strategy, behind almost every spiritual system you could name. And so that makes Jesus' words to us this morning pretty perceptive. It moves right to the deepest longing in our souls, right to the heart of the most elaborate plans and schemes that we've dreamed up. Jesus knows the human desire to come back. 
and the human inclination to find our own way back. To make the end run. To pick the lock under the cover of darkness. Jesus' words to us this morning are a rather sumptuous collection of metaphors. and They hover somewhere in between a parable and an allegory. They're a shrewd teaching nonetheless. But of course, more than just a shrewd teaching, they're an actual revelation of who Jesus is. Of the character and the very heart of God. We've just come out of a story in John chapter 9, you might remember from last week, where a blind man was given sight by Jesus. This incredible, muddy miracle takes place. The kind of thing you think would take someone's breath away if they heard about it. It Would make them shout glory to God, but... But for the Pharisees that heard about it, it does the opposite. They don't deny that something miraculous has happened, but they have a whole lot of negative things to say about the one who did it. They criticize Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. They say there must be something fraudulent at play here. How could, how could a sinful man do such a miracle? And they even push or drive out the man who was given sight by Jesus. And so today, in John chapter 10, Jesus speaks to those Pharisees and to all of us, setting up a sharp contrast between himself and anyone else who thinks they know the way back in. There's only one way back in. One way into a relationship with God, and it's through the gate That's where all the true shepherds pass through. That's where all the sheep pass through. And anyone else, climbing in anyway else, is a thief or a robber. But the Pharisees don't really get what Jesus is getting at. Which sounds like a pretty great summary of the life of discipleship in general. We hear the voice of the shepherd, but we often misunderstand it. Sometimes metaphors and And poetic language like Jesus uses here, they take a while to dawn on us. Take a while to sink in. And it requires some introspection to understand what's going on. And Jesus knows this, so he sharpens and whittles down his words to the Pharisees and to us. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Those sheep who didn't listen, I don't know who those are because it doesn't sound like me anyways. Maybe it's an aspirational statement. What the sheep can be like when they recognize the true way back into the fold. But I'm more drawn to Jesus' words about robbers and thieves. How could you not be? And it makes me think this morning of maybe my favorite genre of movie, the heist film. It's been a staple of Hollywood since the 1920s, I think. I think The Great Train Robbery might have been the first example, the first of many heist films. You've probably seen one or two yourself. Maybe Ocean's Eleven, or The Italian Job, or Ocean's Twelve. Or The Inside Man, or Ocean's 13, or Inception, or 
I don't think there was an Ocean's 14. There was an Ocean's 8, I think. You might have seen one or two yourself and wouldn't have too much trouble sketching out on the back of a napkin the general plot structure, right? There's a group of friends. They get together. There's a treasure to be found in a bank vault somewhere or, or locked away in a casino, someplace under heavy guard, under lock and key. And this group of friends, they feel entitled to it. It belongs to them. And all that security is just an obstacle to be conquered. And so the group of friends plot it out meticulously, accounting for every possible hitch in the plan, every possible obstacle that might get in the way of them finding the treasure. And it's thrilling to watch that all unfold. I know the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, but Lord have mercy, I love watching thieves plot it out. And I don't know exactly why that is, but if you were to press me on it, I'd say it hits us in all those fantasies that we have about being in control, of pulling the strings in our lives, of planning everything out to optimize our life and its outcomes. It teases that vanity that we've got about how clever we are. It shows us how we like to live life on our own terms, flaunting the rules and the laws and the locks when they get in the way. And then by the third act of the heist movie, they execute the plan. And everything goes according to plan, right? Well, not really. If you've seen enough of these, you'll know that there's often a tragic element in the third act. The plan doesn't quite come off, and then the story doesn't end quite in the way we'd all plotted it out and hoped it to end. The great director, Stanley Kubrick, directed a, an influential heist movie called The Killing, kind of set the standard for all the heist movies that followed. And at, at the end of the movie, one of the thieves is making his getaway. He's about to board an airplane with a suitcase full of $2 million in paper bills. The suitcase is loaded onto a luggage cart. He gets in line to board the plane. And then a woman in front of him who is holding a toy poodle drops her dog, and the, the poodle runs out onto the runway, and the luggage carrier swerves to avoid the, the, the little dog, and the suitcase falls off onto the runway, splits open, and in the gust from the plane, the gust of air from the plane, two million dollars spreads all over the runway. And the last shot in the movie is the thief being approached by two police officers with their guns drawn. And he mutters to himself, what's the difference? Sorry for spoiling that one for you. It came out in 1956, so I think it's okay to do that. The statute of limitations has expired. But there's a spiritual insight into these tragic visions of thieves. An insight that I think captures something about our spiritual lives. We want the abundant riches 
the life and life to the full. So we often just rig up a big, complicated system. We think we've covered all of our bases. We've come up with a meticulous plan. We work hard. And in the end, we realize we're not going to make it. It's not going to work out just like we planned it would. And ironically, we end up robbing ourselves of the treasure that we so deeply desired. If heist movies contain a tragic element in the third act, the gospel does the opposite. There's no shortage of tragic in the Bible, but that's all turned around, all redeemed. And Jesus' words to us this morning do not end on tragedy. In fact, they promise to us the very thing that we long for, the greatest treasure, life and life abundant. This is what Jesus wants for us. That return home, Jesus says, through me, you will find it. Maybe as a primer for the good news this morning, we should talk about a few things that are not the gate. That fitness instructor that you follow on Instagram who has an optimized diet, an optimized athleisure wardrobe, an optimized fitness routine, and takes optimized vacations to tropical locations, even in the midst of a pandemic, and is always drinking detox tea. Not the gate. Those long hours you put in every week and the successful business that you run because of it, that work ethic that you're quite proud of, not the gate. That amazing degree from the University of Waterloo that is a gateway to great employment and a gateway to the middle class, not the gate. At long last, having a Democrat in the White House. Or, if you prefer, someday a Republican again. Not the gate. Getting that long-awaited poke in the arm that's going to signal the end of this dumb pandemic. Pretty great, but not the gate. That famous pastor who's got the thronging flock following him everywhere, who has the famous name and the big selling books and the millions of subscribers on YouTube. Not the gate. The Christian Reformed Church and its teaching about sexuality, whether you love it or loathe it or find yourself stuck somewhere in between, not the gate. The Bible. And how easily we assume that we've mastered it. Not the gate. Remember, those Pharisees sounded pretty biblical. When they drove that man away from Jesus, after Jesus had healed him, their focus on the Sabbath and on sin and on who belongs in the community... They would have had chapter and verse for all those things. 
Look, I'm not saying that all these things are bad. I'm not trying to denigrate them. In fact, I think a lot of these things are worthy of our attention, worthy of our work. And at their best, they can even point the way. They can be signs toward the gate. And maybe it's screamingly obvious that none of these things are the gate, are the way to fullness and abundance and and the life that Jesus promises us, the life that Jesus wants for us. But we can elevate them to that level. They can become our preoccupation. They can become our litmus test. They can become our plan and our scheme and the places we invest our hearts and invest our trust. Even a short little glance inside our hearts tells us that we do that all the time. But Jesus knows our hearts. And that's why he says to us this morning, I am the gate. I am the one who will lead you to green pastures. I am the one who will draw you near the still waters. I am the one who will restore your soul. It is through my body that you will be truly fed. It is through my love that you will find your salvation. It is through my death that you will find life. I have conquered all that would rob you and steal your abundance from you. I am the one. I am the way in. Through me, you will find your greatest treasure and safely arrive at home. I love how Pastor Betsy has framed this Lenten sermon series, the I Am Statements, as being Jesus in the present tense. I love that because it's easy to read a story like this and think, well, heaven sure sounds swell. I don't know if anyone says swell anymore. That's what happens when you watch movies from the 50s, I guess. It's easy to read this, abundant, this promise of abundant life and green pasture as a, as a thing we look forward to someday, somewhere out there, way beyond the blue. I think that's often our tendency in our life that we live exiled from Eden by the sweat of our brow. But this is Jesus in the present tense. I am the gate. I am the one who comes to you so that you may have life and life to the full. It is not I will someday be the gate. I am here and now. That's good news for those of us who are longing for home. Longing for life and life to the full. Longing for safety and security in this busted old world. Who want to find a place to rest and who know that our plans and our schemes, that they all fall short. Here's a glimpse of what that good news looks like in the present tense, in the here and now. Some of you might know the story of Kate Bowler. Kate is a professor of, uh, she's in the Divinity School at Duke. She's quite literally the expert on the prosperity gospel, 
which is a version of Christianity that, that, that takes Jesus' promises and, and kind of tweaks them to be a materialistic kind of thing. Kate also has cancer. She's written movingly and bracingly about that. In her memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Kate writes, In the first few days after my diagnosis, when I was in the hospital, I couldn't see my son, I couldn't get out of bed, and I couldn't say for certain that I would survive the year. But I felt as though I had uncovered something like a secret about faith. Even in lucid moments, I found my feelings so difficult to explain. I kept saying the same thing. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. She says that at a time where she felt like she had been abandoned by, or she should have felt like she had been abandoned by God, she was not reduced to ashes. She says, I felt like I was floating. Floating on the love and prayers of all those who hummed around her like worker bees, bringing notes and flowers and warm socks and quilts embroidered with words of encouragement. They came in like priests. And I saw the face of Jesus in them. When they sat beside me, my hand in their hands, my own suffering began to feel like it revealed to me the suffering of others. A world of those who, like me, are stumbling in the debris of dreams that we thought we were entitled to and the plans they didn't realize they had made. Kate told her theologian friends about this experience and they recognized it, either because they had also felt it or because they'd read about it themselves. One of her friends said that St. Augustine called this the sweetness, which I love as a synonym for the full life that Jesus promises us. The sweetness. Kate writes that this was all a gift. A gift that came from God unbidden. When people ask her, she says, I can't give you my five-step plan to divine health or a series of powerful formulas which will guarantee results. There is no plot, no plan, no scheme or strategy other than to tell people that I felt the presence of God in that long, dark night. Joy persists, and I soak it in, she says. The sweetness of God's presence in the midst of the horror of cancer has made everything seem like it is painted in bright colors. I have the same thoughts. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. And yet God is here. We are loved. It is enough. That's Kate's story. It's not my story. It's not your story. Our Lord tells us that there is one way into the fold, that there is one gate, but I don't, mean, I don't think that means it looks the same for each one of us. But if Kate's story is any indication, it's when we find ourselves 
at our most helpless. When we realize that all of our plans and schemes and strategies fall short. When we find ourselves walking in the valley of the shadow of death. That's when the gate opens the widest. And the inrushing tide of the love of Jesus comes to us, overwhelming us with life and life to the full. My sisters and brothers, hear the good news. That angel guarding the eastern gate of Eden has been sent away. That flaming sword has been extinguished in the blood of our Savior. And in his place, that's where Jesus stands. The true gate to paradise. The true threshold to our home. And he beckons us in. May we enter and go into our joy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, we come to you confessing that we are a homesick people. And we are also a proud people. And to find that home that we long for, we often try to find our own way in. To make our own plans. To follow our own schemes. While you are standing there all the while, with an open door. We thank you for conquering all of the forces of death and destruction and futility that get in our way. And we pray that your spirit will give us eyes to see and hearts to hope, to see the gate swung wide open, to see the pathway in to our home, which is communion and fellowship with you. In the name of Christ the gate, we pray. Amen.